uh, I want to um, encourage you guys who will remain with us here um, to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter. Um, as you know, or maybe you might need a reminder, but we are walking our way through First Peter at Grace Fellowship, and we have officially come um, to the end. This is our final text in the book of First Peter. So I'm going to read First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, and I'll read all the way through the end of the book, which is verse 14. Um, it is worth noting that if it's easier for you, feel free to follow along in your worship guide. You should see a copy of our sermon text printed there as well. So would you listen closely and carefully to this God's um, word? Peter writes in verse 8, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that your word, Lord, can create the world or that it has creative power. So we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, now use your word to create a sense of hope in us, to strengthen us by these truths, by the power of your spirit to shine light on these words in your word. And Lord, in your kindness and your mercy, I want to ask specifically tonight that you would use these words in these moments, Lord, to give us fresh sense of the hope we have in Jesus, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, when you're a preacher, you spend really hours and hours and hours thinking about a passage 
overthinking about a passage, thinking about how you're going to explain it, overthinking how you're going to explain it, and you just sort of get lost in it sometimes. And sometimes when you get to that lost place, every now and then asking a question can be a really helpful way forward. Trust me. So tonight, I want to begin this sermon by asking you a question that I have asked over and over and over again this week. And here's the question. We've been walking through this letter for so many weeks now. And here's the question. How did you think that this letter was going to end? This letter where the Apostle Peter writes to struggling, suffering, being persecuted, mistreated, walking about in a broken, fallen world full of sorrows and pain and difficulty. Where for several chapters now, many passages, he has promised them that they can expect suffering and they are to try to endure through it. In the light of all of that, how did you expect this letter to end? Because I want to tell you how I might have expected it to end, or I might even say how I would have ended it if it were up to me. Now, thankfully, it wasn't up to me. But this is how I might have ended it. After hearing so much about suffering is coming and you have to endure, I might have ended it like this. You know what? It's probably not really that bad. Suck it up. See, I'm the kind of personality that has a hard time with negative things. I have to convert them. Hard things, I have to convert them to challenges to overcome, or I have to make a joke to hide from them. And there's even like a I would say a tradition in the kind of church heritage that our church kind of comes from where we, it, it feels to us like it's unfaithful, like it's unfaithful to admit the difficult, painful, hard things in our life. Like somehow that's not faithful to say so. But one of the great gifts of being a Christian is being a Christian allows you to call a thing what it is. See, Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't say, suck it up, it's not that bad. He doesn't lie to them. Now, there's a second way that I might have ended it if it were up to me, which thankfully for you, it wasn't. But if it were up to me, and I'm just being really honest here, after these chapters of saying suffering is coming and you're going to have to endure it, I might have ended it by saying, you know what? Forget it. It's just not really that worth it. I mean, have you ever considered the fact that the hearers of this letter, Christians in places like Cappadocia and Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia, they were doing fine. They were going about their business in the Greek and Roman world of their day. They were doing just fine. And then when they meet Jesus, their lives become increasingly more difficult. See, I, left to my own devices, might have said, you know what? I don't know that this is worth it. But what I'm telling you tonight is that Peter doesn't do either of those things. Instead, Peter says something that I think is better. 
Peter says something that I think is harder. Peter says something that I think is truly, at the end of the day, more helpful. And Peter, at the end of the day, says something that I know for certain is infinitely more hopeful. And the way Peter is going to say this thing is he's going to say four things in order to get to this main thing. So I'm gonna tell you what these four things are. Then I'm gonna tell you this main thing. See, when I listen to a preacher, I like to know where they're going with the sermon. So I'll tell you where this sermon is going. It's line by line. Here's what Peter says. First of all, Peter tells his hearers in so many words, you are not crazy. I'll explain what I mean. The second thing Peter tells his hearers is the precious truth that you are not alone. The third thing Peter tells his hearers is that the painful things in your life, those things are temporary. The fourth thing that Peter tells his hearers, is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, is what God himself promises he will do. Now, those four things have this cumulative effect. Like when you were in school and your teacher told you this test was going to be cumulative, they had this cumulative effect of Peter just announcing to his hearers one last time, the main thing I want you to hear tonight, you have to hear it. If, it's, if you don't hear anything else I'll say, this is the thing you have to hear. It's the announcement that they have in Jesus a living hope, a living hope. So let's begin at the beginning. The first thing Peter says, and I'll explain what I mean, is to his hearers, to the Christians, you are not crazy. Look with me in verse eight. Peter says this, be sober-minded. Okay, the idea of being sober-minded is to sober up, get serious. Be sober-minded. Second thing he says is be watchful. The word watchful here is, it has to do with really looking out, head on a swivel, looking around, be watchful. Well, be serious about what, Peter? Be watching for what, Peter? Oh, he tells us. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The adversary, this adversary, this capital A adversary is the one that the Old Testament calls literally the Satan or the adversary. And then for Peter to call him the devil, it's kind of a Greek way of rendering that, a New Testament way of rendering that. Throughout the pages of the scriptures, we're told that there is a real, live, personal, evil one. The adversary, the devil. Throughout the pages of the scriptures, this adversary that we learn about, he's kind of primarily known for at least two things. He's known for being a deceiver. So in other words, this adversary, part of the prowling around effect is to convince us that things that are true that are not true, or to convince us things are not true that are true, to trick us, to deceive us. Remember, in the garden, when Adam and Eve meet the serpent, he deceived them. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you were deceived, you would not know it? 
by definition. But he's not just a deceiver, one who would lie to us. He's also the accuser, and it works like a one-two punch. There's things that we're told that are not true or things we're told are not true that are true, and we hear that and we act upon it, and then the very next second we're met with an accusation. What kind of fool are you that causes us to run and hide in shame? And according to this text, this adversary, this devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. See, evil in the scriptures has, has three faces, just really quickly. There's the pressure from the world that you and I feel. It's the reason we get kind of stressed about things in our lives. It's like the world presses down on us, the Bible teaches us. That's the world. It's part of evil in the scriptures. There's a second part of evil in the scriptures. It's our own sinful fleshly desires. Okay, it's, it's, it's like when someone says something to you to hurt you, your immediate instinct is to open your mouth and hurt them back. It's fleshly desire. But there's the third category that Peter's introducing us to, like a real live evil one. An author that I appreciate named Cormac McCarthy wrote a novel called No Country for Old Men. And his character, Sheriff Ed Tom, has this moment in the book where the sheriff talks about evil and he talks about the devil. And he simply says, there are certain things that can't be explained no other way. And I'm telling you, as someone who has been a pastor for almost 17 years in some shape, form, or fashion, there are certain things that cannot be explained any other way. There's a devil prowling around, trying to use the circumstances of your life to discourage, trying to whisper in your ear things that aren't true, trying to accuse you of things that would make you want to hide naked and alone and ashamed in the trees somewhere. Peter wants his hearers to know they're not crazy. In other words, have you ever gotten the sense in your life that something or someone is literally against you? In the ways you're trying to be faithful and obey Jesus, it's like you have resistance from someone. Well, if that is true, if that is you and you felt that, it's true, there is someone. C.S. Lewis says we either think way too much about the devil or we don't think about him at all. And it's kind of curious to me where on the scale you might fit tonight. But you're not crazy. There's a devil prowling around. That is strategic and intentional. But the hope of this text in verse 9, look what it says, resist him firm in your faith. In other words, because of the work of Jesus, the devil's schemes are now for you and me. And if we're in Christ, his schemes are resistible. The apostle John says one of the reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, Jesus has disarmed the devil's power and authority. He is Christ the victor. And now the devil's schemes are actually now resistible. This is good news. Peter says, you're not crazy. There is an evil one. And that's sobering, but look at what he says next, and it's precious. He says, you're not alone. Look with me again in verse nine. Resist him firm in your faith, and as you resist him, know that the same kinds of suffering 
are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, the brotherhood throughout the world are the Christians in other places. The same kind of suffering, the prowling around the attacks of the devil, the same kind of sufferings, the persecution, the mistreatment that these Christians are facing, the same kind of sufferings, the, the walking around in a broken and fallen world kind of sufferings are being experienced by all Christians all over the place. You know, we confess it in the words of the Apostles' Creed. We say, I believe in the communion of the saints. What that phrase means is that you and I have a kind of shared fellowship with Christians in other places. And when we experience these things, we're not alone. I spent some time this week reading in particular about Christians right at this moment in Nigeria who are experiencing horrendous things. This one particular Nigerian bishop was mentioning in an interview that First Peter is their text right now. I also want to take this a little bit further. It's more than just there's Christians out there experiencing these things, therefore you're not alone. What I'm here to tell you tonight is there are Christians in this room experiencing these things. And you're not alone. Y'all, because I get to be Grace's pastor, it means I have kind of access to people's lives in a different way. So I actually know and I know it for certain that I can look into this side of the room and I know some of the hard and painful and difficult things going, over, going on, say, over here. And at the same moment, I can know that those same things are going on over there. I think one of the schemes of the devil is to try to convince us that's not true. And I'm telling you, it is true. And I promise you, you are not alone. You, you, you are not alone. Now, in the biggest sense, you are not alone. The scriptures tell us that we are in Christ. Christ, is, Christ Jesus is this man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief and suffering. Jesus himself sees, and Jesus himself knows, and therefore you are not alone, alone, alone. Christians, you're not crazy. You're not alone. And look at this third thing Peter says, it's temporary. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. Now a little while here is not a timestamp, like five minutes. You know, as modern people, let's be honest, if something takes longer than five minutes, you're out. The idea is it is a duration of time that will be over. Suffering and pain is temporary. There might be ways in which you're not sure you can make it through, and Peter wants you to know the fact that it is temporary can help you. I don't know if you've ever had to bear through something hard, but you knew it was gonna end that empowers you and it strengthens you, doesn't it? Y'all remember when Mandy was in labor with our first child? I almost said when we were in labor, but that one wasn't so much me. Um, and, and it's a very long story, but a, um, a unfortunate doctor um, had to come in the room very early in the morning and tell 
Mandy and I, that she was going to have to labor without any medication or epidurals, and that was news to us. Like, we weren't, we, she, we weren't mentally prepared for that. Now, that was a few hours after they had broken her water, and they had started Pitocin. And just so you know, Pitocin's something that makes things just start getting painful very fast. Do y'all know what I'm talking about, sort of? And Mandy looks at me one time with her teeth bared, and she says, Joel, I cannot do this all day. And me, in my infinite wisdom, (laughs) decided to play like a psychological game with her, and I said, well, babe, you don't have to do it all day. You just have to do it one contraction at a time. And, uh, That didn't go over. But what I want you to know is Peter's not playing a mind trick. He's not making some sort of psychological game. He's just telling us the honest truth. Our suffering will be over one day. It's temporary. It's just true. Now, I want you to hear me say that truth will not make our suffering easier. It usually won't. But it will make it bearable, and there's a difference. Now, I understand that as a preacher, I'm kind of speaking confidently about these things. And the reason why I'm speaking confidently about them is not that that's what this requires, It's that I've tasted that to be true in my own life. But I'm even more confident in saying this because of the fourth thing. And it's what Peter says God himself promises to do. So you're not crazy. You're not alone. It is temporary. And now there are things that God himself has promised to do. Look with me. Verse 10 again. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to this, will himself. This is emphatic. He will himself. Now, the Bible talks about how God upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he just sort of emanates from him this sort of powerful, sustaining grace. But even more precious, the scriptures teach us there are certain things that God himself becomes like personally involved in doing. And that's what Peter's talking about. He will himself He will himself, he'll become personally involved in the following things. First of all, he will himself restore. Now this has to do with the restoration of all things. It's Jesus who looks at the apostle John in his vision in the book of Revelation and says, behold, I am making all things new. He will restore 
J.R. Tolkien said sad things will become untrue. C.S. Lewis said heaven will begin to work its way backward. He'll restore. He'll restore. God is the great restorer. Apparently for God, a redeemed and restored world is better than a perfect one. It's sweeter somehow. And he promises to restore all things the things that make you hurt, the pain and sorrow, things in your life, and we could list them on and on in a room with a group this size, those things will one day be referred to as former things because God will have restored everything. So he himself will restore. Here's the second thing that he promises, ready? He himself will confirm. He himself will confirm. This has to do with these unbelieving places in our hearts, these doubting places in our hearts. The doubts you feel and sense down deep in your gut that God himself will be personally involved in confirming for you. It reminds me of the time where Jesus encounters his disciples after his resurrection and Thomas refuses to believe it and he says, I'm not gonna believe it until I can touch his hands and I can touch his side. He's doubting. And then what does Jesus do? You know what he does? He shows up and he says, here. Jesus Christ is so gentle with your doubts. That prayer, Lord, I believe, but I'm gonna need you to help my unbelief. That is a prayer that God himself personally promises to be involved in answering. confirm. He'll personally restore. He will personally involve himself to confirm. He will personally involve himself to strengthen. The idea here is that you and I are weak. We could, we could just begin rattling off all our weaknesses. And then we could begin rattling off how Jesus' strength will be perfect in every one of them. His strength, the scripture teaches, is made perfect in our weakness. He'll strengthen personally. God himself will restore. God himself will confirm. God himself will strengthen. Finally, God himself will establish you. Establish has to do with this idea of the uncertainty and the insecurity and the not sure what you're supposed to do and the feeling like the ground is like coming out from underneath your feet. He promises to personally set you on a rock. Establish you. In other words, give you more security than you could have ever imagined to give you more safety than you could ever dream of, to be for you an anchor in each and every storm in your life. He promises. Now, if you notice, the passage goes on to talk about Sylvanus, this faithful brother, and Mark, my son, and she who is in Babylon. That's likely a Christian woman who's living in Rome at the time that was somehow a close associate of the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle Peter. In other words, all of these truths that you just heard me talk about don't stay in the clouds somewhere, but they're to be lived and taken a hold of by real, live, actual people with real circumstances and real stories just like you and just like me. 
And if you noticed, not one of these promises about what God himself will personally do, not one of them is a promise of ease in any single way. It's not a promise of ease. But it is a promise that he will be personally involved by his grace in carrying you through. I mean, how else was the book supposed to end? Because what else is there? This main thing that Peter has been trying to get at is that God's grace will be there for us when we need it. And that is what you call a living hope in Jesus. You know, when I was in seminary, I will never forget this moment as long as I live. It was the fall of 2010. It was roughly in October, like the third-ish week of October. I had this professor that had walked through some pretty unspeakable suffering. And it's, I'm not gonna tell you the details of it because it's not my story to tell. But we knew this professor was walking through those things. And there were eight of us around a table. And we are talking about the life of faith and it was one of those moments where the textbooks kind of closed and he just sort of had one of those, well, let me tell you something. And here's what he told us, I'll never forget it. He said to us, have you ever thought about the fact that God guarantees us very little? He guarantees us very little. But he promises us two very big things. Number one, he promises that he is reconciling us to God. That is everything from when you believe in him, receive forgiveness of your sins in his name, the sanctifying work he's doing in you, the idea that he has gifted you by his spirit to use your gifts for the good of the body, the fact that he will one day give you a resurrected body in a new heavens and a new earth. He promises that. And besides that, he promises us a second thing, that he will be with us, giving us his grace on a moment-by-moment basis in every conceivable place where you will need it. Now, you and I, can spend a lot of our life frustrated with God because we're frustrated about things that he has never promised us. And let me tell you something, and you are welcome to do that. You are welcome actually to bring those frustrations before him. A good third of the Psalms are those kind of prayers. But those frustrations are brought before him in order that our hearts could be converted into a posture to just simply receive his grace on a moment by moment by moment by moment basis. And to take hold of that grace on a moment by moment by moment basis is what it means, according to the Apostle Peter, to have a living hope in Jesus. 
See, it's all those promises and it's taking them from that future moment to take a hold of them now. I mean, how did you expect the letter to end? And while we're at it, how do you expect it to end? Because I want to tell you what you can expect. As clear as I can tell it to you. You can expect that one day death will be swallowed up forever. You can expect that one day every single wrong will be righted. You can expect one day wholeness. You can expect one day that you will have, as I said a minute ago, a resurrected body in a new heavens and new earth. You can expect that in that new heavens and earth, there will be a new city, a new Jerusalem. You can expect that in that new Jerusalem, there will be a garden. And you can expect that in that garden, there will be a tree. And you can expect that in that garden, on that tree will be leaves. And you can expect those leaves will be for, according to the book of Revelation, the healing of the nations. Every single wound that you carry will be healed. You can expect feasting. You can expect dancing. You can expect tears to be wiped away. You can expect to see Jesus' face. And you'll see him in that moment, according to the Apostle John, as he actually is. And you can be certain that on that day, you will not be disappointed. And as if none of that were enough. You can expect his grace in a moment by moment by moment basis in every conceivable place you need it. This is called a living hope. And I cannot personally imagine all the exact places that you need to take hold of a living hope in a fresh way tonight. But what I'm here to tell you is it is there for the taking. Let's pray. Lord, these things are hard and they're even harder to live. So I pray that you would help us. And I pray that you would use these words like a seed that would be watered by your spirit that would take root, Lord, that would bear fruit. Lord, for your glory and even for our good, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.